0: hopeless to to major in.
1: Okay, we're gonna get started. Welcome everybody. I'm Rob Penzer, I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. Welcome to today's uh, round table, the Realm of Mystery, which is funded by a John Templeton Foundation grant. Uh, Before I introduce today's participants, I have a few announcements. First, please turn off your cell phones as their activity interferes with our live streaming of this event. And uh, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Go to our website, helixcenter.org. If you're not already signed up for um, email notifications, please do so. It also gives you the opportunity to uh, use our discussion board and leave comments. We really want a lot of feedback from, uh, from our audience. Um, following uh, uh, today's program, on Saturday, November 7th, we have Speak Memory with NYU neuroscientists Christina Alberini and Tom Carew, UC Irvine philosopher Sven Bernecker, City University London cognitive psychologist Martin Conway, and University of Manchester neuroscientist Penelope Lewis. Then on Saturday, November 21st, translation matters with Princeton professor of French and comparative literature David Bellos, Sarah Lawrence professor of comparative literature Bella Brodsky, U.C. Santa Barbara Translation Studies Director Suzanne Gillevine, Metropolitan Museum of Art's Publication Program Director Mark Polizotti, and uh, SUNY New Paltz English Professor Michelle Woods. Then on December fourth, fifth, and sixth, a Freudian perspective on what ails the world today. This is a special colloquium uh, of the Helix Center with the Association des, des Amis de Passage Committee Freud. And please uh, go to our website for for more details. Uh, We have something like 18 and counting uh, participants, uh, an international roster, which should be very exciting. So I'd like to introduce today's participants. And uh, please refer to the handouts, or for those of you watching on the web, uh, to the event page to read uh, more on uh, our participants' biographies. And please raise your hand when I introduce you. Mystery author, Megan Abbott. Philosophy Professor Cal Rovain. Theoretical Astrophysics Professor Michael Turner. Jewish Studies Professor Elliot Wolfson. And English Professor Susan Wolfson. So now, we'll begin.
2: You want to start?
3: Ah. I'd be happy to start. Is everything okay?
2: Yeah. Is everything okay?
3: Yeah. Is it, is it okay now? Yes? Okay. So, um, Ed said this would be a conversation, so I'm told not to be too didactic, so I'm not going to speak for too long, um, but just suggest a few things we could come back to insofar as they provoke a little conversation, but I'm not sure what among the things I mentioned will, will be most interesting to this very, very varied uh, group in the inner circle and I assume throughout the room. Uh, right now in contemporary philosophy, <laughs> that was spooky, yeah. Um, in philosophy, if you asked uh, a, a working philosopher, do you think you're confronted with any mysteries right now? They would probably say, yeah, to consciousness and freedom. Uh, but you probably shouldn't um, just dive into those topics, but rather ask them what they take a mystery to be. And the question, what are limits on human understanding and how do we know about them, has been a very long-standing question for philosophers. And I suppose Immanuel Kant is a, is a very big pioneer in this, in this enterprise of thinking about it. The old way, Kant's way, assumed that we know from the inside the nature of our own minds, because we can't think without knowing what it is to think. And somehow, from the inside, knowing what you're doing as a thinking being, you could work your way to conclusions about the limits of what you're able to do that way. And he really thought he could do that. So that's topic number one. How could you just, from your armchair, know these things, which Kant thought.
0: So pure thought.
3: Pure thought, yeah. Um, But another model for thinking about these limits uh, would come from uh, a more naturalistic perspective, like the perspective of Noam Chomsky. And a lot of philosophers are very taken with a fairly scientistic worldview, and that's why they regard consciousness and freedom in particular as mysteries, because they don't know how to integrate those things within their scientism. But Chomsky's view, I think, is really worth taking seriously because it's very clear-headed. Even if you don't agree with it, It's it's very clear how he gets to where he's going and he's not waving his hands. He suggests that cognitive abilities are basically biological abilities and that it's in the very nature of a biological ability to be uh, limited. So he thinks, take a motor ability like running. If If you're built so that you can run, you're probably not built so that you can slither like a snake you know it's just one of those things the things that enables you to do it makes you suited to do those to do those things in contrast with something else and so his working assumption is that there's no reason to think cognitive abilities are any different from motor abilities and so if we have cognitive abilities the tasks they suit us to do Will, will be the ones we can do. And in being suited to do those tasks, we will not be suited to carry out other tasks, which could still be called cognitive and would deserve to be called cognitive. And so that picture really does give um, something besides uh, armchair reflection a leg to stand on when you start talking about limits on human understanding. This is now an empirical hypothesis that we are limited beings. And then the question is, Still, even if, even if you have this scientific basis for thinking you're limited, how could you know which of the things you're now thinking about and can't understand are ones you can't understand because you lack a good theory as opposed to don't have the right cognitive structure? Right? So, so those, that would be the framework within which I would, I would pursue these questions and conversation and add in that Columbia, where I teach, is the home of pragmatism and pragmatists always say, never throw roadblocks in the path of inquiry. So their ideas, even if there are limitations, proceed as if it's not true. You know, and, th- and there's a question about the merits of that attitude, which would be worth discussing.
0: So I like the pragmatic approach. And I'll <laughs> add the word arrogant. Um, because the, the last thing you were saying is, I mean, cosmologists, I'm a cosmologist. And cosmologists are extremely arrogant. Why? because we think we can understand the universe. And that's kind of what you were saying, is it may well that be that we can't understand the universe. But it is certainly true that if we think we can't understand the universe, we will never understand it, even if we could. Right. Did that make sense?
3: Yes, it did, yes. And,
0: and, um, and our questions are a little more pragmatic. So, um, and, and they're more along the lines of a mystery. So there are mysteries that we know that we need to solve. So going with the... uh, So the the known unknowns. What is dark matter? What is dark energy? Uh, We don't need to really talk about them, but those are mysteries that we really know. Uh, Then there are the uh, unknown mysteries. Um, And I won't give any examples of them because we don't know them, but, uh, but dark energy would be one. So that was a mystery that we we didn't know and it came upon us when we found that the universe, the expansion was speeding up and then the, the last bucket also sort of aligns with what you were saying which is the, un, the, the mysteries that may be unknowable and so I, one, of the, one of the ones that that's easy for, for me to articulate uh, is the laws of physics. So um, I'm quite confident we will figure out the laws of physics. I'm quite confident. I, I'm not telling you when, but I'm saying that we'll be, we live in an ordered universe and we make observations and do experiments and we'll figure out the laws of physics. But the one that may be unknowable is where did they come from? And uh, I don't think, um, I don't think there's any experiment that you could do that, or that I could even imagine where you could differentiate them coming from God. Whatever that means, or that they came from a uh, freshman physics experiment of a very advanced civilization, where all the students were asked, "Eh, "Write down a set of rules and make them go and see what happens," and uh, you know maybe we're the C plus universe. That uh, and so there's a category. uh, The other one that probably everyone has heard of is the multiverse. So the idea that the universe is disconnected pieces, and that gives. People like me, a headache because the, our brand, the science brand, is falsifiability, um, and you know when you deviate from your brand uh, when you get into matters of faith, well you know i don 't need to prove that there 's a multiverse because I know it uh, so that 's not our brand but so here the multiverse is one of those possibly unknowables that could be the biggest idea since Copernicus, right? So not only uh, is Harvard not the center of the universe, or even New York City, uh, but there's many universes. But we might, that might be an unknowable mm-hmm. thing.
1: Don't think of yourself as uh, arrogant. Think of yourself as the little engine that could. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, no, uh, I don't know. Is this working? Yeah. I think because okay, I, a to your
5: mouth.
4: <laughs> now it's working? <laughs> a
2: to your mouth.
4: What am I pulling closer to my mouth is the question.
6: <laughs> <laughs> it's OK. Is that better? Yeah. That's
4: fine. Um, so I know I, I was introduced to someone in Jewish studies, which is a, a label that is difficult for me, because while I did, uh, I did decide to put my philosophical training to the study of, uh, in particular, Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism, it's also the case that I do you know, comparative mysticism. And um, I think from my study, Here's where I think there is a little bit of a difference between, between the approach of religious studies um, and both the philosophical and, and scientific viewpoints. And I want to illumine illuminate that with, with a statement of Freud because of the building we're in, which is very often forgotten. And I actually wrote it down, if you don't mind. I'm going to read Freud's exact words. Every dream has at least one place where it is unfathomable, the navel, as it were, by which it is connected to the unknown. Now, this is Freud. So there is no way that he understands by the unknown some appeal to a transcendent being. Call it God as we do in the theistic traditions. So his unknown is not some entity um, which um, we could pursue through knowledge or through faith, but could never know. What he's really saying here, that there is some kind of knot, um, which is the navel. And the metaphor of the navel is kind of significant because it conveys the paradox of being bound and unbound. So the dream is both connected to, yet separate from the unconscious. And to me, this is where Freud is at his most mystical. I wouldn't necessarily say religious, but his most mystical, because what I've found over and over again in the case of, of mystics in different traditions is that the mystery or the secret is like a dream, and that it's positioned somewhere between uh, conscious and unconscious, between concealment and disclosure. And to me, to me, that's, I think, the greatest lesson I've learned about. About the sense of the mystery from the text that I study, I, th- I think it's a slightly different model because it means, you know, now this is a, it is a little bit arrogant to think that somehow we'll ever be able to peel away to peel away all the veils. And let me conclude by saying one other thing at this moment is that what I learned from the Sufi tradition. The Sufi tradition, the Islamic tradition, the task is to unveil, to pull away all the veils to see the, the, the face of truth. But when you read deeply into the Sufi masters, they've, they've articulated over and over again that the greatest veil is to think that we can remove all veils.
7: Um, speaking of arrogance I'm the one who's supposed to be creating the mystery which may be the most arrogant (laughs) position of all but it's interesting we talked a little bit about this when we were getting ready but if you look at the history of the genre which is not a very uh, old genre as far as genre goes if you date it back to you know, Poe's detective novels, or certainly Sherlock Holmes. The original tradition was to create a puzzle box for the reader, where ostensibly the rules that Poe set out were you—you you couldn't cheat as a writer. There had to be a way that you could actually figure it out, and that there would be a solution at the end. Um, American crime novels and mysteries of the hard-boiled era really sort of exploded this notion. They were not so interested in the puzzle box or the drawing room. Uh, they were really more interested in, in what I see as psychology as the detective like Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler's famous detective, as a sort of you know uh, a a damaged man, and what matters more is his personal psychology and our attachment to him and Often the plots don't quite line up. There is an answer to why who you know why how the bullet got in the body in the room, but other issues larger ones are are unanswered and Marlowe famously says at the end of the big sleep the the first Marlowe novel that you know, he who tries to be this knight amid the corrupt rich and the and the gangsters, that he had become a part of the nastiness now by entering into that mystery. And I think, you know, when I create, what I think is becoming, those of you who read more recent mysteries, the ones that linger with us the most are the ones that, that you know, I, I try to do this or do that. Do both. That try to have some uh, for, the, for the person that's reading it to to feel that they have uh, that there's an answer to the puzzle. They will feel satisfied. Um, so you know, if you do, if you were differentiate in terms of secrets and mysteries, the secrets are revealed, but but then you want to leave something for the other readers who don't know why they care so much, but they do. And and mystery readers are like this. And you somehow you're trying to find a way to hook into something in there in their, in themselves if you look at the success of something like gone girl one of the most recent you know smash Crime novels of the last thirty years people you know they liked the tw- the twists and turns, but it, and essentially it's a novel about marriage, and everyone was seeing their own marriage is in, in it somehow or their own relationships and that 's what makes it linger larger and th- in that case the unknowable becomes a, a question of the reader what is the reader uh, why the reader feels care so much is the is the real unknowable that y- me as the writer can't guess I just try to, to tap into that They think there's a reason I always teach Freud's Dora and Mystery uh, Novel classes for the same reason That's so much about levels of Of your investment in this Thing <laughs>
5: um, i, I I'm Thinking of Robert Frost's two line poem called The Secret. We dance around in a circle and suppose, or is it a ring and suppose? But the secret sits in the middle and knows. And it's a big joke about um, what can't, you know, what, what actually knows is just a placeholder. The important action is, is what the effect it produces of dancing around and trying to suppose. And suppose is to project an activity of mind that is conjectural, investigative, intuitive. Um, I've loved your um, bringing up that that Freud quotation because I've actually used that in my own literary criticism about William Wordsworth who writes his great epic poetry in trying to come to terms with the freak out mysteries of his boyhood. Very powerful memories that he calls spots of time that are enshrouded in mysteries. He steals a boat goes for a joyride in moonlight in the lake and then returns the boat. But he has an optical illusion as he's rowing out to the middle of the lake that there's a big peak that has suddenly risen up to come after him. And after that event, for many days, he's troubled by uncertain and unknown modes of being indistinguishable shapes. He's writing epic iambic pentameter, and only Wordsworth can put indistinguishable into epic iambic pentameter and get away with it, but he could do it. And he spends his entire life wanting to write about those mysteries. And it's not solving the mystery, but the activity of being possessed by it, wanting to write about it, turning it into his poetic muse, even though he tells himself that the reason he's writing this autobiography is to prove to himself that he is the epic poet for the 19th century, not the dark poet of the 19th century. His best reader in the next generation of romantics, um, John Keats, who didn't read the prelude, Um, but read other Wordsworth, um, said that Wordsworth's power was in the dark passages, not in the light, and not in the didactic poet that Wordsworth was trying to shape himself into. And Keats formulated um, a phrase that has really been taken up called negative capability. It is a capability of being in a state of negative knowledge. And he thought Shakespeare was the one who exemplified this um, uh, you know, most powerfully, and it's what went into literary achievement. It's when a man, he was gendered about this, is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts without an irritable reach after fact and reason. You will always reach after fact and reason, but it's um, the irritable reach that dispels the creative power of mystery. At the same time, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who wrote The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, his most famous poem, talked about the genre of that in another famous soundbite that he wanted to procure for these shadows of imagination, these dream states, that willing suspension of disbelief, which for the moment constitutes poetic faith. Now, it's not just being diluted. It is a contract that you make when you read to enter into a willing suspension of your normal systems of understanding uh, in in an act that's called poetic faith. Poetic faith is really important because faith in an absolutely Uh, transcendent God who was the explanation for everything, was being dislodged by the end of the 18th century and probably well before, and other kinds of propositions about the mind's search for understanding were becoming the fuel for literary and scientific endeavor. The vitalist debate was really strung completely across about whether consciousness was a biological epiphenomenon or was a kind of superadded electricity and soul, and you know huge debates on that people lost university positions for arguing well, arguing the more modern side of that, which was that it was a, um, a kind of chemical um, epiphenomenon. Inheriting a lot of this was Mary Shelley um, in a spectacular month of June in 1816 that people in my field are going to be celebrating the bicentenary of, but it was about um, a young undergraduate student who doesn't keep in touch with his advisor and decides to create a life form. Uh, to overcome a trauma of his life, which is the loss of his mother to scarlet fever. So he wants to create a human being or a creature immune to any kind of um, destruction except some sort of violent physical catastrophe. And this turns out to be Victor Frankenstein's creature. Um, That is a search for the origin of life that is hooked by Mary Shelley to a question that we haven't yet put on the table, which is the social responsibilities and social consequences that come with the enthusiasm for scientific research. Um, So that's what I've been thinking very hard about as we get ready for
3: all sorts of bicentennials next year. So I have a question about mysticism. Um, and its connection with the idea of a mystery and how the word undergoes some kind of change in meaning compared to say when someone like Kant is using it or Chomsky So, so people like Kant and Chomsky think of cognition I would say as an attempt to really find order in a way that presupposes a whole lot of control And so so cognitive success of some kind really is is making sense of it in a way that doesn't resist you or get away from you. It's gonna now be very predictable and yield to technology as well. And my understanding, which is limited of mysticism, um, seems to want to dispense with that notion of control so especially if there are techniques of meditation or other kinds of discipline that that are used in order to get into the kind of state that only a mystic can achieve. Say, the Sufis were very interested in that. Um, it, it, it sounds as though you have to give up a certain aspiration to control, even if you use discipline to achieve the kind of experience that mystics aim to achieve. And that's very different from letting go of something in a scientific sense. So the scientist might well say I've got a good toolbox, I can find a lot of order uh, by using the scientific method, and you know what, it doesn't answer the ultimate why questions but those turn out then not to be scientific questions. And maybe we're not as gripped by them as we once were uh, partly because science seems to do so so well in the things it tries to do. Um, And Anyway, I think people are less gripped by that that root into mysticism, you know, that well, what is the ultimate answer? Because if it's through mystical experience that you're getting a different relation and getting into a different relation to these issues, it's not as though the things that used to resist control of intelligibility now yield to it, right? It's very, it seems, it strikes me that it's a, it's a different aspiration, but I'm not sure, and I thought maybe you could. Illuminate me about it, that contrast. <laughs>
4: well, um, I, I do agree with the distinction you're drawing. Um, clearly, um, what mystics well, it's a little it's a little complicated because you know because of historic, you know historical contextualization. So you know, and like there's so much now running through my brain. So, <laughs> it, um, but if I bring it to this moment. Um, I, I would agree with you, it's, it, there is a, um, a relinquishing of control in the way that the scientific quest um, demands and succeeds quite well, although of course we should have a footnote here, for the vast majority of human beings there's no understanding. Of all of the changes that have been brought through science, mm. I mean, who understands how anything really works so that 's something we also have to keep in mind so from a point of view if you 're looking at a, at a, wa- a, a a larger swath of humankind, i 'm um, not sure that the scientific actually has you know it, it has really has really imparted to people a real sense of control over their lives, and I guess I would just say this that um, from the mystical standpoint what does the, what does mysticism have to contribute well you 're you're, you're quite right when you say that there, you know, there is a, a loss of some kind of control, but there, it's very it is a matter of great discipline
3: yeah
4: mm-hmm. and um I just think it's a sense of there is a kind of humility here um, that the mystical, mystical path introduces and somehow it does, maybe like poetry or dreams, it somehow does relate to something very fundamental about the human experience which can't simply be discarded. And, I, 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 again, I think that there's something about paradox which is very powerful. And here might be a point where mysticism and science do have something to contribute to one another. Right? Um, I, so from my standpoint, the secret as secret can only be revealed to the, to the extent that the secret is concealed. Because if the secret is truly revealed, it's no longer a secret that's being revealed. And mystics have lived, as as I put it originally, they live in this kind of liminal space between concealment and disclosure. And it's not a linear process going from concealment to disclosure. It's much more paradoxical that the, the, the mystery is disclosed in the concealment of its disclosure, and concealed in the disclosure of its concealment.
7: (laughs) Well, I have a question for every book. One thing I think about a lot is I I grew up as a true crime aficionado. And what about the mysteries that we actually may inside not once solved um, which i think is the uh, the cases that haunt us as we, we talk you know once once you know jack the ripper is definitively identified that's gone forever, and I've talked to some people who have devoted their lives to different cases, and you do have this lingering sense. I think the movie Zodiac touches this very well. That that there would be a grave disappointment to actually have an answer because that pursuit has consumed them. Sort of get to some some of what you're talking about. That they would rather remain in this state of of not knowing, but. Always the possibility of reaching an answer in this case, but to be in that suspended state—it can't be true for science from a as a discipline. But but um, but certainly seems that remaining in that state, because you, you know, if it's a it's a it's obsession from a psychological point of view, you don't want to. If you have an answer, you have to let go of the obsession, presumably.
0: Well, yeah, I, it's interesting that. The uh, one question that's often asked of scientists is um, do you think we'll understand it all by the end of your time and would you want it to be that way because the adventure, the quest, but I want to come back to the the, isn't the grand mystery that's driving all of this kind of like in a play, right? So why are we here? So all of a sudden we're in this room, well we're in this universe, and we're trying to figure out why we're here. And as scientists, we're kind of the lowbrows. We're the plumbers. So we're going to figure out how it works, because I think that's going to shed light on things. That Number one, it's orderly. There are rules. It isn't random. Uh, that, and the rules are very, very precise. And so we were talking about this earlier. Well, do the rules hold everywhere in all times? And, and that's an answerable question. And we've tested that, that the rules are the same here as they are. Uh, 20 billion light years away and back in time 13 billion light years. That's pretty amazing. And so, isn't that the grand mystery that we're all trying that that we don't we all want to know why we're here? And you know, and I, and I, th- the, Elliot. It. The other thing you were saying is that that science doesn't affect people. Um, and, or no, n- no not think. everyone is.
4: I'm not sure it imparts orderliness insofar as you know it's so beyond the reach of of most people. So it is
0: beyond think. the reach of most people, but the, we we set the. I mean, not everyone understands quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, including myself. But uh, we we do set. I think you know a, a large fraction of the people know we live in a big universe and there are lots of stars, and there are other planets, and, and that sets a very big context. That, uh, and I think a large number of people uh, think that it's a very interesting question to know if there's intelligent life elsewhere, and oh my goodness. So if, if we plumbers came back and told you, guess what, there's intelligent life elsewhere, that changed the framing of a lot of the, you know, so then I'm going to be so lowbrow on, uh, I I'm, I'm shouldn't look at Elliot here when it comes to religion. So then, boy, does that affect religion? You know, so we have, all of our religions are kind of based here and now, right? Or are, are about us. And so, uh, you know, if you take the Christian faith, so did Christ visit all the planets? Uh, I guess if you're a Mormon that's kind of built right in but uh, so but we're all struggling to answer this grand question and um, the mysticism so I, I didn't like when you were saying that the, 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 well actually I liked everything you said but the scientific method um, how many people here know the scientific method? I'm going to put my hand down because I don't know. If you ask most scientists, we don't know the scientific method. If you you would ask them, it involves uh, falsifiability and it's not so linear. And some of it involves, I don't know if it involves mysticism, but um, getting, uh, when you're exploring the unknown, you need crazy ideas. So we know how to test ideas and that's why the older scientists like myself are really good at testing. Anybody can test an idea. There's a list. Does it agree with that? Experience? Getting the new ideas, and you know, that's where the brain. You have to free the brain to think crazy, to think. To leap. Yeah, Feynman uh, was one of my teachers when I was an undergraduate, and I just absolutely worshipped him. So anything he said, I just, oh yes, yes sir. Uh, and he said, you know, I really envy you because you're so ignorant. <laughs> and it took me about 20 years. To, well, actually, it didn't take 20 years, but it it took me a while to figure that out is that I had an open mind and so I could create new ideas and the trouble and I see this a graduate student comes to me or postdoc comes and says couldn't things be like this and before the words are out of their mouth no 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 instead of well maybe you know maybe that's not quite right but if you know too much you. Sometimes it's, it's, the, it's the tyranny of knowledge, that if you know too much, you can't get to the next big idea. And so maybe freeing the mind, um, So I think the scientific method, uh, where I was disagreeing with you a little bit, is I, we don't have a book and we don't carry, I mean...
3: Uh, oh, let, me, let, me, yeah. okay, let me say something with greater care then. I when I I, used I this word. for being. I didn't. Oh no, philosophers yeah. like it. I mean, that means you were listening and you you know engaged <laughs> and so no. Actually, we're the ones who are always rude, you know, because we we think it's a nice thing to say. Actually, I'm not convinced by what you said because you know, I mean, that's that's what we do for a living is talk to each other that way. Um, so when I brought in the idea of control, uh, I was bringing in an idea that I don't have full control over. In fact. And I was being a little bit speculative. But the, I, but the thought I had was that there are definitely goals in science. And the goals have to do with explanation. Even if there's no one uniform method for coming up with an, a, an hypothesis, or the form of a theory even, or even the form of a good question, there still are goals that drive scientists to want to find order where, where they couldn't see it before. And you keep saying the universe is an ordered place, and we know that it's an ordered place, and finding that order and putting it in a way that makes it very usable by us. I, I think of that as kind of a, a form of control that scientists aim at.
0: Well, I would and shift it a little bit and say what we're really interested in, we've discovered that there's order and that there are rules, but I would say what science is all about is how the universe works. And. But rather you, than but to you find, take,
3: but you wouldn't take it as finding out that there is no order. Sure, we would. You would?
0: Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and there are systems that don't have order, where the uh, uh, chaotic systems and systems yeah. that are very difficult to describe. But I would say, if you had to put it in, you know, what what, what is our mission? It's to understand how the universe works.
3: In a way that renders it intelligible, or not.
0: No, I think I would just leave it at that, understand how the universe Why works. Might
3: not be as far from mysticism as I thought then? Because it, it strikes me, uh, and, and maybe because philosophers always are using old science, you know, we're behind. Uh, but I, I think of science, when it inspires philosophers to say things in a scientific spirit, as as not just openness, but pretty confident that um that you can find stuff out rather than be permanently mystified and when you find it out you you have i mean a theory is something that's taking a lot of things and bringing it under something general right there's something going on which is uh I was using this metaphor of control and I don't want to dominate too much, but it strikes me as as a very active form of submitting to understanding insofar as it can, which is rather different from a uh, a mystical aspiration. I was just trying to draw a contrast between well, uh, the two. we
0: think we go in open minded and we found order, and in science you build upon what you know. Right.
3: But would it be recognizably science if you said, well, there's no order? Well, maybe yeah, you could just I, say I we'd think be so. Done. I think
0: that um, natural philosophy, observing the world, doing experiments, finding out how it is, finding that it's not, finding that there aren't rules, would have been a path, but that's not the path we found ourselves on. And so that's I would why say that would
3: be the end of science. I guess that's my little well, assumption. But, well, it wouldn't know, be the end have. of
0: science, but we might not be as successful as we are. I mean, if, if, if uh, we're successful because we can predict stuff, yeah. and if we couldn't predict, we, it started with eclipses, right, and, and astronomical yeah. things, our, you, people wouldn't have called us up if we couldn't predict. And so part of our power <laughs> is that we're good at doing plumbing. I mean. If you had a plumber who couldn't fix plumbing. Yeah, but that's
3: control. Or
0: if you didn't have plumbing, you wouldn't (laughs) need a plumber.
4: But but surely you would would acknowledge that part of the orderliness is disorderliness or randomness. I mean, that's, that's basic to our experience in the world. There remain things that are inexplicable, even within the parameters of orderliness and scientific verifiability.
0: So you can have a system that's governed by rules. And we think our universe is governed by a simple set of rules that we can put on a t-shirt. I should have worn such a t-shirt. Well, well
4: you, you might and, think better. <laughs> and, um,
0: and, and the rules are so rich that the outcomes um, are remarkably. I mean, so for a, a game that isn't rich is tic-tac-toe right so it's kind of it has very simple rules it's a trivial game it's not the outcomes are not rich it's not interesting right. a game that is rich that also has simple rules is chess right. so our universe is more like chess the outcomes are very rich and hard to predict and so having fixed rules doesn't mean that you have outcomes that are easy to predict and then sometimes they can look random And I would just call that richness. If we could, I mean, if we go from the deterministic, you know, the Newtonian, Descartes,
4: Heisenberg's indeterminacy, is is that no longer feasible in the mind of any scientist? Well,
0: um, Heisenberg is different because, again, it's rules. But what what we discovered in quantum mechanics is that. Uh, what we can predict, and I, I don't want to go off on this tangent, but is correlations. Oh. But it's still predictable. and yeah. even, But even if you go back, let's forget about quantum mechanics, because this unpredictability, if you have a sufficiently complicated system, even though in principle you can predict the outcome, its behavior is chaotic and so in practice you can't, and that allows richness which is a good thing because if there were only five personality types right. if you you know if there were only five human behaviors that, that wouldn't be a very interesting world but the laws of science, the laws of physics and science are rich enough to allow for what seeming allows for what appears to be free will whereas if you know it's governed by rules so how could it be free will
2: I'm so, um, not so what is the
0: definition of mystery? Just something
2: we don't have the answer to yet, and that once we find the answer to that, then that mystery is out of the way, then we go to another mystery? Is that the idea of mystery? Is that what Wordsworth has? In, what Wordsworth you well, said had in mind I, when-
5: I think what Eliot said is once, once a secret is explained as a secret, it ceases to be a secret, but what it also may do is generate the next question. And so a a lot of these searches, I mean, you bring up Heisenberg as well, is is that it's the structure of inquiry um, that um, and the structuring of inquiry that that has a lot to do with the object of inquiry. So you like to use metaphors of plumbing and how it works. And that that is a kind of um, grammar that assumes an it and a working. Uh, and the, um, so, so the question is you know, that, that in some ways the kind of question you ask, the structure of the question you ask, is also going to be um, involved in the object that, that you discover. Um, so that I mean, Heisenberg is part of that. I mean, um, the Romantic poets that I work on are very interested in the relay between question and answer, and the way in which those, the par- part of the paradox is that um, one constantly transmutes into another; that the the answer becomes the ground for another another stage in questioning, um, and that even a paradox, as, as Wordsworth knew, he you know, we fall asleep in body and we see into the life of things. That's about as mystical as that guy. Gets. Gets. But when he says, we see into the life of things, that's also like the worst line of poetry he ever wrote. I mean, that langu- language becomes impossible when you imagine a state of... Of kind of um, consciousness that is beyond language, and it's the language that gets you there that is often the more powerful experience. Whether you're talking about science or religion or mystery writing, um, the prehistory for your kind of mystery is um, the first independently self-sustaining gothic novelist. Some of you may have heard of her, Anne Radcliffe. Epic. Um, her big one was the epic *Mysteries of Udolpho* a thousand pages of unspeakable horrors and mysteries and then she solves them in the last page. That was her that was her sort of signature. And it's it's just some very reductive, practical explanation. That wasn't a ghost. It was a you know fire in the tower by a demented nun or something like that. But that that once you have the answer, you don't have the answer. You have a scientific explanation that is no sooner proffered than than subverted and you leave the novel thinking, well Was it was the novel about the 900 pages of the phenomenology of terror and mystery, or was it about the explanation at the end? And you know, she's um, Radcliffe is wonderfully double parked on that. She does both things simultaneously. The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner has you know beckons us to come to all sorts of simple conclusions. Not good to kill albatrosses. Good to kill. Good to bless snakes. But if you're in a Christian universe, blessing snakes. Um, is a very peculiar pivot into kind of um, uh, moral unity and reintegration to the universe. The whole process of the ancient mariner of telling his story is that he is finally interviewed by the um, rower of the boat who comes to pick him up from the ship and he says, What manner of man art thou? And at that point, a fearful agony wrenches his frame, and the only way he can answer that story is to tell it all over again. And it always ends with that question, what manner of man art thou? So it is this constant repetition of the process of trying to understand and the um, perpetual elusiveness of the object of knowledge that becomes the powerful imaginative and poetic motor for that poem. Um, and you know, I could give you any number of examples but it's, but it's, it's very actually,
7: much. It's just what, yeah, yeah. exactly, because then it, then it would end. So, going right. back to the original point, to that, and that, you know, it, I think an end, the end of the mystery is just the realization that that wasn't the real mystery, right. that that, you know, and it sort of perpetuates. And I think that the teller or the detective or Freud, it, their lens then changes the nature of the mystery ultimately. Once they put their lens on it, we have a whole new light layer of mystery. You know, you start out, why is Dora coughing or whatever. Whatever your question is at the beginning of of that case study, and then it becomes through you know Freud's endless footnotes and sort of you know the way that he's viewing it and, and his his sort of lens, how does this work, um, then adds a whole other mystery. So you, you you end at the end of something like Dora or in a lot of mystery novels with ten new mysteries that have sprung up that are that are not about what you know, you know, who put the, the bolt and the body in the room.
0: So there's the- a sequel. <laughs> and, uh, and, and actually, I, so science is the same way, is that we often ask the wrong question. So I told you what dark matter and dark energy are two mysteries, which I won't tell you that much about. Probably everybody has heard of them. And they may be the wrong mysteries. We may be asking the wrong question, but usually we get an answer. And the, what's wonderful about science is as soon as we get an answer, we get new questions. And so it, it, we get sequels. And and since we enjoy the process, the sequels uh, are really fun. But the, the other thing that you said that I found fascinating is that uh, the way we exchange consciousness is through language. Is that more or less right?
5: Um, it is. Yeah. It's what what, um, what gives consciousness um, uh, accessibility. And to what's a fascinating
0: about that is language has its limitations. And I thought mm-hmm. I heard you say that it may well be that language is not rich enough to fully convey the consciousness that's going on up here and...
5: Though language can figure that limit um, and, uh, and, and, and you know, in other words, language can become um, a description of its Um, of its own limitations. There are all sorts of epistemological and religious and poetic traditions that push language up to the limit, where the disorganization or inadequacy of language is the powerful um, operation of imagination. So that, I mean, the science, for instance, will leave language behind and and use mathematics. I mean, when Wordsworth has a nervous breakdown, um, he doesn't pick up Milton, he picks up Euclid. And you know he finds great solace in geometry, precisely sort of along the lines that you talk about science, that it's universal, it's impersonal, it's the same everywhere, um, that it is free from the uh, corruptions or inflections of emotion and passion and personality. But it's not language. It's a symbolic form. And it's um, and in, for Wordsworth anyway he doesn't write you know the the thirteenth book of Euclid's Elements but he writes um, he writes about it in the middle of, of of a crisis of confidence in human perfectibility after the French Revolution.
0: So the the language being an imperfect way to communicate the consciousness of one to another um, brings up this thing we were talking about earlier, which is. Um, I believe that, uh, based on what I said earlier, that everyone would agree that a dog can't understand quantum mechanics. And if I asked a neuroscientist why, it's because it's not just that they haven't been trained, it's they don't have a a prefrontal cortex, is that the right answer? And uh, so, is our brain powerful enough to understand the universe? Just like we, I think you were agreeing that language may be in... Imperfect in in transmitting one's consciousness to another, and so uh, our brain may not even be capable of understanding why we're here. Which is would everyone agree that's the big question, or no? No.
5: (laughs) How you get to that question as a human being is is uh, another question. Don't we all? I
0: mean, we rephrase it a different way, but don't isn't that kind of we want to know I don't why do not wake we're up
5: here? every morning with that question i mean in some ways i mean that that may be the big question but it's one question yeah. that why is um, anything oh it's a very
0: rich <laughs> question yeah it yeah, is very rich but i
5: mean take take the end of Ke- keats ode on a grecian urn Oh, okay. Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all you know on earth, and all you need to know. And it's a complete tautology. I mean, it's, it's you know, it sort of yeah. goes, it's, it's a syntax. It goes around and around, like the Grecian urn itself, whose images it. Alan, are.
4: Alan Ginsberg cited that and to his father on his dying daddy, Oh that's and a his, great... fa- his father said, Alan, it's beautiful, but it's not true." <laughs> <laughs>
5: Well, you have to do your own work with those words, right? I mean, they are two of the big three. And they them. seem to say, OK, this is, this is the stuff of answers. But in Keats's management, it's the stuff of, of an answer that really harbors another question yeah. about what those terms mean, why we care about them, why we want to tease them out of a work of art from 5,000 years ago, and think that that's going to be a comfort to human knowledge in 1819.
4: It's very teleological. I'm surprised that I'm a little surprised because why the big pick, it seems that you know why are we here is a very teleological question, and um, maybe we need to embark on a path which does away with the teleology. There is none. There is. I mean, I think this is probably a great contribution of Buddhist thinking.
5: Does that involve origin
4: as well? Yeah. I mean, so no that you would
5: say origin and telos are... are well,
4: uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, there's uh, the tathata of all things, the suchness of all things, is identical to the shunyata, the emptiness of all things. So come to the, come to the point of the realization that the suchness, what is is what it is, and that's Simply the nothingness of being. It's like a womb it's fecund. It keeps it keeps generating itself over and over again. But there is no there is no why. There is well, neither yeah. an origin nor a telos.
0: Well, our, our, the way we would word the question and why, how we would word it is that. So everyone's heard of the Big Bang. We can trace our origin back to the Big Bang, and. We are now, we feel like we can actually address the question of what the Big Bang is. Do you, do we can't you answer. believe it.
4: literally in a Big Bang? Or do you say that's a metaphorical way now that physicists can hand, or cosmologists can handle the question of origin?
0: Well, the, the Big Bang, we can describe it mathematically it's, it's the creation of matter, energy, space, and time. And but,
4: it wasn't a bang. That's what I'm saying. Still, that's a metaphor. Was
0: there a noise? Yeah, uh, it's, a yeah. it's still a metaphor. Uh, yeah. But so our big question, if when we, and we haven't answered what, you know, how matter, energy, space, and time were created, but we can trace ourselves back to a simpler state, smaller that we call the Big Bang. But the next level of question, which maps on to the sort of English version I gave, that I thought everybody wondered about. Is why is there something rather than nothing?
4: It's the, it's the ultimate it, metaphysical it, it, question. But
0: and, and of course, if there were nothing, we wouldn't be here to ask.
4: Well, maybe there is nothing, and that's why we're asking.
3: <laughs> but I sense that Ed was frustrated that we're not nailing down. No, I wasn't this. frustrated.
2: I was just wondering, is there something more to the notion of mystery than what seemed to be happening, which is essentially saying, well, it's a mystery, like the mysteries we read, because we don't have the answer yet. That when we have the answer, then that stops being a mystery. So now we focus on the next mystery. And in science, we move that way. We answer this, and this then leads us to this other question. And so we keep answering mysteries. But is there something more fundamental about, so wh- why do we call it mystery as opposed to just calling, we don't have the answer yet?
3: Right, an, un- un- an unsolved problem.
2: As of now. Yeah. It's an unsolved problem as of now.
1: I think a number of the comments also allude
2: to the, um, the
1: etymology of, uh, of the word, which was all about initiation. And in a sense what you have been talking about both in the scientific and the mystical realm is that there is a kind of initiation. It's not so much about the answer to the mystery, but it's almost a way of experiencing and thinking. I mean that's you know, what's the scientific method? It's really more about an attitude than anything. I think that there's a but but I was
4: I was trying to articulate something different that the mystery isn't an unknowable X. That at some point will become knowable, and then we move on. It may it's, it may itself generate another question. I was trying to elicit from from uh, the study of mysticism a different portrait of the mystery. Right.
2: No, yeah. I understood that. I mean, but isn't but not, in religion the idea, for example, of God that uh, Michael mentioned, that that's that's real mystery, that there is no there is no answer or solution to that and that you have to live with that Yeah, certain expressions. not just because
3: you're too dumb but because there well, just isn't sure. any right. well, yeah. that, that's
2: real mystery that it's not something you then find oh. the answer and stops being one
4: right in the Christian
0: tradition um, but that's yeah. where the arrogance comes in uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and arrogance so is very important I'm in science the idea that you could actually know something that you may not be able to but if you didn't have that chutzpah if you didn't say, well, I could figure out how the universe began, or I could figure out if there's a multiverse, or I could figure out why there's something and nothing. And uh, I guess we don't know that, uh, no, we certainly don't know, and we know from experience that most of our questions are the wrong questions. But as we tell our students, the most important thing is asking the question. Uh, and then that leads to another question. And, and I guess some of them are unanswerable. Uh, or maybe, we don't know that for sure, but you're saying, I guess that's what you're saying.
4: Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a difference. I, mean, I think mysticism embraces a kind of inherent unknowing, um, or, or, or let's go back to the language. You know what? I, I was thinking before as you were speaking, Blanchot has this idea of the limit experience. And I th- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is unique to the human species. And Blanchot says we are capable of thinking that which exceeds thought. We are capable of speaking of that which exceeds language. And that seems to be something, you know, I think, distinctive. And so it's in that sense that mystic- mysticism speaks of the unknowability, or you know, the, the, the more technical term is the apophatic, apophasis. But apophasis, which means unspeaking, is a gesture of speaking. It's, it's speaking not as opposed to not speaking. If mystics truly adhered to silence, then we would have nothing to talk about in relationship to that. So, in fact, you know, through the ages, mystics have tried to articulate this unspeakability, this ineffability. But it's a gesture of speaking, just like an analogously. So, thinking of the mystery is a gesture of thought. It's a path of th- it's a path of thinking. That's like
1: when Wordsworth had intimations yeah. of immortality. Well, again, that lie too deep for words. Yeah, it's
5: it's a state. I mean, Wordsworth is intensely interested in states of consciousness that are inaccessible uh, to us. The idiot boy um, is, you know, it's a poem that he loved that his friends hated. But when the idiot boy speaks, Wordsworth was the first one to put the word "burr" into English poetry. I went to the OED for that one. But that—that's just a sound rather than a signifier of sense. Finally, when the idiot boy comes out of the woods at night, I mean, that's a sort of little epic right there, and his mother says, what did you see? He said, the cocks did crow to woo to woo, and the sun did shine so cold. Now that's language, it's a bit of a riddle. In other words, I heard the owls and I saw the moon. And he's relating it in the way that um, the chimpanzee made the word out of candy water, um, made the word candy water to describe watermelon. You can kind of do the math, but the mystery of what's going on in that consciousness is inaccessible at that limit of language. Um, so that what, and Wordsworth was intensely interested in mad women, in idiot boys, in people at the very end or very limits of, of human language who, who make sounds that may or may not be language. Stevens, Wallace Stevens takes us into the snowman who has a mind of winter and can see nothing that is not there and the nothing that is, which is very close to your territory. Um, but what I want to say is it takes you know, a human imagination to be interested in that kind of problem and want to push language to the point where nothing both signifies something that's positive and something that is completely the opposite of positive in the very same word and to ask us to think about a state of mind that can do both things at once. Now that's a paradox. That's a mystery, and that's poetry from from human imagination, wondering how far words can can become explanatory instruments when they just become sounds, and when they recede from legibility altogether into something that we would call mystery, because it is the kind of initiation rite into something that we don't have access to. I think mystery is, essentially means etymol- etymologically, it's the it's the closed eyes of the of the hierophant. That are turned inward. And we just see the spectacle or the phenomenon. Is that right? I mean, well, I wouldn't notice Oh, okay. No, well, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, either, but I thought, I mean, yes. Yeah, the the thought,
4: eyes or the mouth, there's a debate.
5: Yeah, but whatever it is, it's closed in. I mean, so that you see the spectacle of something to which you have no access. Wait, but is
0: language always a limit? I mean, can't you imagine, is it the a permanent language. limitation or maybe we'll figure out a way language turns out uh, 200 years from now to be very primitive that actually what we do is we have a, a box uh, which is a computer and you put it yeah. on your head and it Sends electrical impulses. Well, that's and the
5: interest in symbolic form that, that words were And happen. so it's
0: not language anymore, but we're communicating. No, it's, 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 communicating but it's a symbolic
5: or, form, yeah. yeah. So and then maybe we won't need that at all if we get to the perfect technology that dispenses with language and then dispenses with us.
3: But on those. But on this question of, of inaccessibility, it's, it's interesting to see the slides between something being inaccessible to language, an expression in a language, and being inexper- in- inaccessible, period. Right? Those are two yeah. very different things. So I yeah, have period. access to the way things feel to me, which I can't put into words. Uh-huh. Um, but I have no problem of access. I only have a problem of access when it's someone else's feelings as William James said, the breach between one consciousness mm-hmm. and another is the deepest breach in all of nature, and you know, he was right, but, mm-hmm. but that isn't um, just created by the fact that some things are hard to put into words. Right, right. right. It, it's something else. No, which it's is a radical state. And, totally and right. I would also suggest that uh, worrying about that, we don't always need to go to the thing that resists rationality, the areas of madness and disorder and so on. Even things that are perfectly orderly can't be put into words sometimes. It's kind of strange. And when you were asking about uh, what are the things that really mystify us and, and your, your one is uh, why are we all here? And I can tell you that, that mine, and it's not an unanswered problem, I don't think. It is really just that I don't understand point of view and I said in my little blurb that I think about it all the time and I just want to share with you how I knew I was a philosopher without knowing what a philosopher was at the age of 10 just sitting on the playground with my little friend Susie McDonald and I suddenly had this moment when I said oh my god I can see her eyes but she can't see her eyes and she's looking at my eyes and I can't see my eyes and how strange it is that we have this vantage point which invites us to think we're disembodied, but it's precisely an embodied point of view, but that it, it's, it's simultaneous, it's a lot like what you were talking about. You simultaneously get that you get it, but know that you can't get it at the same time. It's, it, so inter, I think almost all interpersonal engagement has this dimension of not fully grasping and knowing that you don't fully grasp the other point of view, partly because you know how much is there in your own that can't be grasped. right? But that's and only
0: temporal because uh, Galileo uh, um, yeah. invented the mirror and uh, so that Susie McDonald could see her eyes and but I'm speaking metaphorically so Galileo said measure what's measurable and make measurable that which is not. So, uh, and so we, that's why I asked the question about language is so we can't perfectly communicate my consciousness to you and vice versa. But we invent things that allow us to extend our capabilities and we continue to do that. And the mirror is a trivial one,
3: but But it's really important though. I think But it's not seeing your eyes. eyes. I beg to differ. Uh, (laughs) If I put a mirror
0: up I can see my eyes. You can see
3: what they look like.
0: Oh, you meant yeah, see I mean, into your, yeah, sorry about your
3: that. See your eye, yeah. See, yeah. That's the no
2: difference between science and philosophy,
0: But we're actually getting, I mean, we're getting there because you, I mean, if you take Galileo's words seriously, uh, measure what is measurable and make measurable that which is not measurable. So you have to tell me, oh, I didn't just want to see my own eyes or I didn't you know I wanted to see into the eyes and then I could ask you well could you be a little more specific there and uh... I didn't say
3: I wanted to I said I couldn't oh, and you, I was happy with well, that. Well but I was going to you know? oh you're happy with that
0: well I'm not happy ah, with See
3: that's the control
7: thing I was talking Galileo about. Galileo was not happy with that
0: and I'm not you happy with yourself
7: the. And her part, eyes? You're part, part. seeing her, yourself ultimately right you're projecting Everything into looking her, into her eyes isn't that the sort of ultimate limitation is that you're, that you're, you're only seeing yourself reflected back literally but also that, well, that you're imagining you're, that right. you're imagining things that, that right. are you're coming from you are projecting things from right. your own
3: case because you can't take up someone else's point of view right. and it's very profound that you, cannot, you literally cannot yes. do it and, um, and that's mysterious to me but it's not because there's an unanswered question it's just a brute fact but I, I still am mystified,
0: but is it a fact and forever so because you, you're just building upon, you're building upon what Carolyn said, which is that uh, we can't language doesn't communicate everything that's up here, and but we're not done we We invented language, we can invent something else where we uh, uh, you just have to watch Star Trek. you put the the Vulcan mind uh, meld on. Uh, That we can, it's not a permanent limitation, is it?
3: Well, look, you can try lots of things. You could try, uh, philosophers dream up impossible ghoulish experiments like, um, what is this one called, where the states of the body next to me are um, ones that I'm now able to track with my brain because of some hookup so that now I can see what it's like for another. I use my brain, but I'm getting neurological messages from another's body. That's the kind of thing you're imagining. And I just am not sure when you're imagining things like this, whether you're imagining that it's yourself experiencing another's body, or you cease to feel like yourself. And so I think there are real problems about what it is to even identify a point of view as you have the point of view, and whether that could be a stable thing when you're imagining Ways of having access to a point of view not your own, and just the way you have an access to your own point of view—that's very murky territory, because you'd have to distinguish uh, the others as the others, right? Well, I—I I, I,
0: I, um, what's sort of interesting if you look at evolution on Earth—it started with single-celled animals, or sorry, single-celled things. And then they decided, um, you know, striving to survive and all that. And they, then they decided that coming together was more valuable. Mm-hmm. And uh, that even though you were going to s- sacrifice your selfness, if you came together, you could compete for resources better. I mean, I'm not sure they decided that, but it, it was decided. And people so. People
2: from the other universe on that computer, <laughs> those kids, they yeah, decided. Yeah, the kids it. decided
0: it. And, but aren't we? Do we think it's stopped right here that we're, this is the biggest entity that's going to be made? That we're no. not going to make bigger things? Yeah, no, we... that's
3: good. I don't want to dominate too much, and we should probably get back to mystery. But I'll just say I work on group agency. I think human beings can function in, as of from one point of view in a rational sense or a practical sense. A philosophy department can reason as one.
0: That I've never seen, but well, I have, I <laughs> my a department. physics department can't, I should say. I taught
3: my, I taught my department that there's a <laughs> difference between voting and reasoning as one, Impossible. and they can do it. Yeah, but they can. And so you can, you can um, think of individuals as, as rational agents with a, are we on? Yeah,
2: yeah good. Okay, as, so.
3: as rational agents as things with a point of view from which they deliberate and act, and those don't have to be human size. They don't. And so I'm not saying that there are insuperable barriers between human beings, but I am saying that that is not the only notion of a point of view. And this other notion of a point of view, when I had my crisis on the playground, is a different kind. And finding out that organisms can glom on to be larger units is not the same thing as contemplating how one point of view can think another. One
5: way one point of view can think another is through words and literature. Yes. I mean, one thing literature does to you as a reader is that you inhabit the um, subjectivity of the person who's writing while while you're reading, I mean, especially for novels. Well, that's
3: what provoked my comment when yeah, you were so talking about exactly what is and that, isn't accessible to yeah. language.
5: That, that, I mean, it's, it's imperfect. I mean, you wouldn't say that, that everyone will read a Dickens novel differently, but um, everyone will have the experience of what it's like to be Um, what it's like to be Pip and to see the world from his point of view. So it's not empathy, but it's, it's sympathy. It's an extension beyond your normal frame of understanding, even that mirror scene. I mean, yeah, Galileo may have invented mirrors, but mirrors were not popularly available, widely available until the 1830s when they figured out how to do cheap backing. Before that, you had to go to Versailles, and that, that was a very exclusive invitation, and it was really, um, you know, uh, Louis XIV saying, "Look at all my mirrors, ye monarchs, and you know, um, uh, suck on that because I have more mirrors than anybody." Um, Milton was very interested in in a mirror scene in Paradise Lost. Before Eve is taken to Adam, she wakes up in Eden and looks in a pool of water and doesn't recognize her reflection as herself and falls in love with it. Now, there are lots of ways to read that scene. The default position for a very long time was, oh, it's narcissism. It shows that she's fallen before she falls. But another way to see that is that she actually sees a female creature in nature before she's taken into the all-male world of creation. Mary Shelley was really interested in this because she has the creature in Frankenstein first behold what he looks like to everyone else in a repetition of that mirror scene. The creature looks at himself in a pool of water in a pigsty, next to the pigsty where he's been living, and sees that he is hideously different from every other human being that he's encountered. And he said, I was mortified by my deformity. And deformity is a relative term, but mortified means he was, he was killed. I mean, he understood that he was dead in the world because of that. In autobiography, Wordsworth has himself compare what it is to try to write your autobiography, to discover the mystery of your past, um, to hanging over the side of the boat and trying to see down to the, um, to the past years, like looking down to the bottom of the lake, but the kicker, as you can see, is you can't separate what's at the bottom from the reflection of yourself looking for what's at the bottom. So even mirrors, which would seem to promise a kind of clear view of the self, especially the eyes, are very, very complicated by the um, um, Heisenberg principle of, of, of catching yourself in the motion of desiring to see yourself. And those are inextricable, and that's that's a narrative issue again. Yes, it so is. yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm caught by by what a precocious ten year old you were <laughs> that you that you really had a vocational moment. Um, exactly. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's great. Comment. I mean, that's yeah. a yeah. Really
7: peculiar, yeah. Well, when when you when you're actually writing a crime novel or a mystery, one of the goals inevitably, particularly because they do derive from sensation novels, you know, the Moonstone, sort of the first mystery novel, Wilkie Collins, who wrote sensation novels, and the idea, you know, behind the name sensation novel, that you would be held in its grips. So, so the goal with characters, particularly if you have a main character, first person, is is to you need the reader to identify with that character, especially if they're going to dark places. The goal there is to not cut off any access points. To to, you're trying to keep the the narrator, the protagonist. uh, You're not trying to be too specific with these novels because you want the reader to fill it fill it with him or herself. And therefore, they become the solver of the mystery, too. And therefore, they undergo, as the protagonist does, the realization that there are these larger mysteries. So it is like that's sort of the trick or goal. And one of the reasons in literature right now the unlikable Character problem has become a, a major one, and, and that's that moment when the reader says, No, 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 and I, I hate And that's fascinating as a writer, and it's, I'm sure it's fascinating for all their therapists because, it, you know, why are you so bothered by this character? Um, but that's also, you know, that's the balance you're trying to, to strike as a, write, as a writer of, of these sort of more visceral kind of fiction.
0: So we all agree that, we, that human beings like mystery for different reasons. I I think we're violently agreeing that we like mystery, (laughs) but for different reasons. And so why is that? Why do we like mystery? I mean, shouldn't we like certainty and? uh,
5: uh, Well, Kohler says that's when the mind closes down. While you're hovering between possibilities, that's the strong working of the the imagination. And as soon as you resolve on one or the other, it's understanding, and it becomes fixed and dead.
0: So it allows possibility.
5: It's possibility, but it's also propulsion. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. So, so that,
0: for for us, it's propulsion yeah. that we want to go out there and solve that mystery. I mean, I
5: was even interested in how many negatives that we have to use, like unknowable and inaccessible, which are are the sort of negation of the positive state. And that, that's I mean, that's one way you you propel yourself is you take something that seems to be in the world and attach a negative prefix to it. I mean, Percy Shelley talks about about the human life to come as the unwritten story. Um, which uh, you know is an imagination of a possibility that is different from the historical here and now and for him that was a very important political act of buying in moments of horrific oppression is to be able to imagine something else by the negation of what you know Um, so inaccessible might mean that there's something ultimately accessible or it might mean just the negation of your um, normative habituated understanding of what accessible means
3: Well, it's funny you should say that because um, Descartes, when he was thinking about uh, whether he could know something besides himself when he was in a state of hyperbolical doubt, uh, reasoned his way to God's existence, right? And he said, and don't think that you can arrive at the idea of God by negating the idea of yourself. Like, you know, he says, you can't do that. And what's curious is that in English, he described God as unlimited which is a negation. Mm-hmm. And limited um, uh, looks like the positive term, but Descartes insisted, no, ne- limited is the, ne- the, ne- the negative word, even though our English word is the negative word, and that himself as a limited being is a negation of a positive idea that he required. And so instead of thinking of it as m- mystery, he thought of it as a definite presupposition of his own self-understanding, yeah. a quite definite positive beyond Beyond himself, thing, uh, and not negative, and therefore not a mystery, and that's very different from the way we're talking about it here. Well, is
5: that that sublimity then, rather than, than mystery? mystery?
3: Well, it was almost mathematical. I mean, yeah. he, you know, he's the, he was able to think the Cartesian coordinate system. He was able to distinguish um, indefiniteness, which is the way he tried to get at the cardinality of the integers. All if not, but then he said they just go on and on and on, yeah, and yeah. I can't understand that unless I have a positive notion well, that's of the cardinality kind of the energy, you, know. you
2: know, the... Uh, to answer your question, I, 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 I've been, as I'm sitting here thinking, it seems to me, uh, do dogs worry and think about mystery? Just as you asked about them and quantum mechanics. So, or is it something that we humans have? You had that sense of mystery when you were 10. So, and you talked about mystery and uh, these novels that had to do with feelings and emotions and sensations. So is it possible that because the humans take so long to grow up, so long to understand what's around them, so long to be able to become independent that mystery or the issue of having emotions about the unknown are so powerful with us.
0: Well, it might be, uh, put a more positive word on it, or a, a different connection, is curiosity and mystery are very deeply connected, I think. And I think human beings are, I don't know if other creatures are curious, but human beings least We scientists like to tell everyone that human beings are naturally curious um, about our environment we We are trying to figure out new ways to exploit it. If you think about how we 've survived it 's not because we 're the strongest um, it 's because we use our mind and and a powerful tool of the mind is to be curious. Oh, what if I ate that berry over there, or what if i You know, move north, or what if I did? uh, Curiosity is connected to mystery, yes? Let
5: let me add one quick footnote to that. Um, The person who invented the word curiouser out of curiosity, (laughs) curiouser and curiouser, is the master chess player, Lewis Carroll. Um, and, of course, curiosity is the embodied um, muse of, of Alice's adventures in Wonderland. But I'm he invented
7: Donald Rumsfeld.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, but, but curiouser, I mean, I'd like to say curiosity is a process. And, and Carol understood that by, by making that a kind of um, comparative that doesn't reach its superlative, but is just self-perpetuating. Curiouser and curiouser is the syntax. Well,
1: I think neuroscientists have had some interesting things to say about, uh, you know, the whole capacity for curiosity and for reducing prediction errors. We we had uh, a roundtable on consciousness here some time ago with and Carl Friston, neuroscientist from um, England, uh, has a theory about uh, the mind as a a Bayesian, you know, probabilistic. Uh, uh, anticipator uh, in order to reduce or minimize prediction error, and that this has obvious adaptive uh, advantages. And, uh, another, and there's an affective neuroscientist, Jak Panksepp, who has identified um, specific areas in, in the brainstem across mammalian species and even some birds, one of which is a seeking system that uh, kind of propels the the, uh, the mammal to kind of explore, and it's it's it's, it's, it's and it's something that is um, mediated through immediate affective consciousness. See, I was thinking about this when you were talking about you know the nature of consciousness. You know, his idea is that consciousness is not dependent on the brain; it's on on the cortex. Uh, you know, clearly you have these encephalic children who seem to have very real evidence of consciousness, but it's all affective. It's not dependent on language. Language, of course, enhances the experience of consciousness because it's not just the primary experience of it, but then there's a reflective capacity. There's awareness of our consciousness, but the immediacy of consciousness in his idea is purely affective. And I think that has relevance in terms of how we think about scientific processing, mystical processing, that these may also be um, engaging different levels of of the
0: brain. the, The thing that keeps coming back to me is that the one thing that we know for sure in science is that things are changing. We live in an evolving world and human beings will evolve. So when you talk about limitations undoubtedly the limitations will become smaller. And so how do you assume that? Sorry?
4: Why do you assume that?
0: Uh, well if you let's just take language, which we, which I think I learned today, uh, I'm, I'm actually fascinated well, by the idea of a limitation in in it
8: well, leaves
0: part of our consciousness inaccessible. Language has evolved. So if you think of the beginning of language, the ability to the, the amount of your consciousness that was inaccessible was much greater than it is now.
4: I would argue that the more it's evolved, the more the more of its inadequacy is revealed. And also, can I can I go back? I may have missed a moment, but the whole point of the, the mystical understanding of the of what I'm what I'm calling here the apophatic. It's not my term, is what scholars of mysticism and also you know, it's the Neoplatonic tradition. It's precisely to get away from the binary that you articulated, so the unspoken is not simply the negation of what is spoken. the negation is it's not the negative it is a problem of language in the end <laughs> but but that's the point of and that's you know that's in a, in a measure what I've been trying to articulate here there's a different approach to the mystery in mysticism which it tries to get us beyond this binary thinking. It's an undermining of the binary thinking, and that would include, I, I have to say, would also include this idea of progress. It's it pointing to something more intrinsic about the human experience. I'm not gonna be grandiose and say truth, because I, I don't know what that is, but at least from, I could I say in a more humble way it's pointed to something about the human experience of which that will persist, no matter how much we conquer.
0: So I withdraw the word progress because it's <laughs> subjective. But I would keep the word evolving in there because the, the human capability is, is going to change. We know that for sure.
4: But who, who but poets better understand language? and they. Continuously articulate the ineffability at the core of effability.
9: <laughs>
2: Not all. What? Okay. Okay,
1: I think.
2: Time for questions. I wish we
1: could go on for hours, but we're going to open it up to uh, questions from the audience. So if you could line up and uh, please uh, keep your comments
0: in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't have to keep our answers in the form of an answer, right? <laughs> More questions.
8: <laughs> there were certain uh, phrases that uh, really interested me. Entering into the mystery. Um, control. These interested me because I think mystery is a given in all the forms that are uh, the initial quote for this meeting. Uh, from that unnamed politician that we'd better forget about. Um, Anyhow, so what seems to interest me is the question of of entering into the mystery, of what forms there are. So in science, in addition to the scientific method, we have uh, historic accounts of dreams, uh, intuition, unexpected associations leading to insights and solutions and furthering uh, of answers to scientific problems. So, how, uh, what do we have to say about that? What, what can be done, if anything, to train us as one is trained in the scientific method um, to find forms of control or I would say frames of reference Um, Because in the mystical tradition, there are lots of of controls. Fasting is one, um, meditation is another, and so on, that are non-language forms of entering into the mystery and returning with some answer. Uh, So I guess my question is, isn't this about the advance of how we Find ways maybe psychoanalysis could be looked at as a way of entering into the mystery uh, and what kinds of responses or answers or clarity or whatever you want to call it uh, come from preparing ourselves uh, and a relationship to mystery was that
3: directed mainly to me yeah okay Um, well, that was a very rich question, which doesn't leave me any very clear path of answer. You, you provoked a lot of thoughts as as you were speaking. It, it struck me that when you said, what is it to enter a mystery, um, that it's not really very far from what I was thinking about when Ed was sa- asking, well, what's the difference between the dog and the human being? We do have this incredible capacity to anticipate things that haven't happened. And the dog anticipates things that have happened as things that are going to happen again. But we we have a different way of anticipating that goes beyond that. And it's very closely tied to knowing we don't know things. And I think entering into mystery is bound up with this very peculiar, distinctively human uh, capacity to to be open to possibilities which may be actual in the future, or maybe just imaginary, um, that are not present. It's, it's very odd. And I don't, I don't think other species do that, that we know. No.
2: Okay.
9: Hello? Hi. Um, so my
4: question pertains to synchronicities. Um, I don't know if there was a panel through Helix on synchronicities or if there will be. That would be exciting. There was, one. Uh, there was okay. So I guess if the conversation was for hours, the, the word would have come up. But I'm wondering. Um, obviously, there's no news or science behind synchronicities. The latest that, you know, the panels can share. But
8: is there anything on that note um, that you want to just
9: speak of top of mind? I don't know. It's a very open-ended. If there's no, if there's
4: nothing, that's fine. I just I thought it was an interesting thing to explore.
2: There's a. French physicist who writes about it, Pauli, who was here. And I think he's going to be in town if he hasn't already been and talking about that again. And he has a book on that, but uh, I don't remember his name, but he writes about the young Polly meetings, I think. Uh,
9: huh?
2: Yeah, Sparker. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, I just brought up as I thought. That, that's you know. a mystery.
6: <laughs> it's a mystery that's based in reality, I guess, mm-hmm. as in our own experiences. So thank you. Hi.
10: Um, what struck me today was the elephant in the room. And that was the fact that no one in this panel has mentioned the ultimate mystery You know, Woody Allen and I want to know what you think about the mystery of death and how this ultimately unknowable, besides the people who claim to have told us things from beyond, how this mystery informs or leads or hovers over all the other quests for certainty, whether it be in human communication or in knowing how the universe works but how did, I'd just like to know what your thoughts are on this topic.
0: I have an incredibly simple answer. I think death is what makes life worth living. <laughs> that if you imagine that there is no death, then you have an infinite amount of time, and time is not valuable, and why would you do anything? Which, anyway, that has nothing to do with. The, so I didn't explain the mystery. Yeah, but I mean,
10: I understand that these other things are activities that make life worthwhile. But how does this ultimate mystery, yeah. you know, inform the
5: other mysteries? Well, there's, um, I mean, it's a great literary subject. I mean, Milton begins Paradise Lost by wondering about what brought death into the world and all our woe. When Coleridge writes about the imagination as hovering between images, the text he goes to is Milton's great. Description of Death and Paradise Lost, which is both an allegorical figure, but a literary event that defies understanding. Um, shape it had, if shape it might be called, maybe shape it had none, um, fierce as ten furies. Uh, I mean, you can't even think what one fierce fury would be, but fierce is 10 furies, um, you know, is a kind of sublimity of comparison. And Milton is interested in the way in which death, as a language, defies language. Edmund Burke takes this up as the text that is the poster boy for his theory of the sublime, of when the imagination, when the human intelligence reaches the limit of its, of its ability to grasp anything, he brings in Milton's death. Coleridge brings in Burke and Milton's death to talk about that hovering of the imagination. So that death becomes one of those events in language. We don't know it without the language, even with a capital D, death. That, that is there, but I think you're right that it is whatever it is, it's the opposite of what we do know. And so, the work in language, the excitement and dynamism of language around death is that it offers you what you do know and then it takes it away. So, you have that strong working of the imagination in relation to what you know and what you don't know. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, that, that you're right, you and Woody Allen are right, I mean, that, that's the limit, and it's the limit beyond which we can't know. But but which we keep trying to know. So when Wordsworth says, visionary power is embodied in the mystery of words, and he really means something like um, how we use words to get to what we don't know and how we understand that words finally are not equivalent to to the states that, that we're seeking. But just
11: to add to yeah, that, go ahead. That, you
5: that, want uh, to crime, crime, the crime novelist? There is an
7: argument that all crime and mystery novels that's really what they're about, and many of them play with Persephone or Dante. and The detective is doing this descent, you know, and it eventually sort of reaches the, the larger question. There's uh, any rec- any uh, crime series where the recurring detective. Eventually, that's the end you get in the series. So I think you could easily make the argument that that's the only thing that crime novels are about, um, which it seems very telling based on your
6: question. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful discussion. Uh, It seems to me one of the primary tensions in this discussion was between Mr. Turner's desire to understand more and some of the other panelists' desire to preserve greater mystery. Um, my thought is, um, as Edmund Burke wrote in his inquiry into the beautiful and the sublime, as Immanuel Kant says in his essay on the sublime, that you know one of the reasons we want mystery in our lives is that it leads to this sense of the sublime, and as they also say in those works, other things, beautiful harmony, things on a large grand scale can also inspire that sense of the sublime so um, the night so I am sort of drawn to moments where understanding coexists with this sense of the sublime. So the night sky is no less sublime to me for my knowledge of astronomy. Yosemite is no less sublime to me for my knowledge of geology. So I'm interested in what the panel thinks about the relationship of mystery to the beautiful and the sublime, and how people fit that, per- that moment of simultaneous understanding exaltation when you look at the night sky or Yosemite Valley into your paradigm of how you think about the mystery and the sublime. Thank well,
5: you. when hum- Humphrey Davy has his introductory lectures on, 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 on chemistry, he uses the vocabulary of the sublime to express his enthusiasm for the progress of scientific knowledge. I mean, for him, those things were not, not opposites. They were um, the, the sublimity of, of human desire and science and human curiosity um, was tied absolutely to the progress of scientific knowledge. And it was the alternative both to the uh, old-time God who explains everything or the French Revolution which promised and didn't deliver. So when he's doing this in, in 1802, it is exactly what you're talking about. It is, the, um, it is the language of sublimity and religion and scientific progress and human progress all on the same track.
0: But I think the, the more knowledge you have, it makes the mystery more interesting. Yeah. The, it sharpens it and and I think it to take it even to a higher level I've often told people that I thought Einstein's God is much more interesting uh, like I, there I'm using a value statement the, um, than somebody than a simple person's God because
5: more curious maybe well <laughs> you,
0: you know so God doesn't have to keep the planets in the you know moving around orbits and stuff like that he doesn't have to run the universe and, but, so how did he create space and time and the laws of physics and the, and I'm not saying that's the ultimate thing, but the sublime becomes more sublime the more we know. I mean, doesn't a mystery, in, in, in mystery novels it's the same thing. So you start out, there's a dead body or something, you got a mystery, it becomes much more interesting the more you know.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next. Well, you want to say sort of just, uh, <laughs> i have a quote here from Abraham Joshua Heschel. These here. I mean, I don't agree ultimately with Heschel's acceptance of a transcendent God, but he's talking here about, uh, about enigma, and he defines it as the unknown within the known, the infinite within the finite, the mystery within the order. So that it would seem to uh, go along with what you just said, I think. Yeah.
2: Thanks. Next question.
12: So just a comment first. Um, I don't know that if our prefrontal cortex was larger that, that we would then grasp. I think the issue with grasping is grasping a system of which we are a part. And that would be true no matter how large our prefrontal cortex becomes. That, that's just a side comment. Um, the two things that kind of occurred to me over and over um, one of them is um, the idea of, uh, of humans as creators of meaning. Um, so the, the chair or, um, or even the concept doesn't, doesn't have inherent meaning except as we create it for whatever neurotic reasons we create it um, or creative reasons we create it. Yeah. So it, it, it makes me wonder that perhaps mystery is as, is as much a creation as meaning is, is as much a human creation as meaning is. And perhaps it's simply a way to describe our discomfort with our own limitation. Um, and that's another motivation behind discovering mystery is discomfort. Um, or another word for that is insecurity or fear. So that's that's something that kind of goes over and over in my mind is is meaning and mystery, both simply creations of the human mind. And then I'll, I'll say the second one, and whoever <coughs> wants to comment on either one I, it would be wonderful. Um, The second one, um, which for me is a little more gnarly, is actually maybe it's equally gnarly, is uh, the issue of continuity versus discontinuity. So continuity would hold, and this is kind of uh, to my uh, limited understanding, a more Asian concept, um, that everything in existence from the imminent to the transcendent simply exists along a a continuum. So it exists continuously in broader and broader or more sublime forms. So whatever we grasp today, the higher thing is a mystery. We grasp that, the next higher becomes a mystery, and it's pretty much an even process. Uh, Whether we ever complete it or not, we probably don't. Discontinuity, I think of as being more the Judeo-Christian paradigm. And discontinuity holds that there is not simply a quantitative difference between the imminent and the transcendent, but there is actually, if to use a limited word for us limited people, a qualitative difference. So from the, for example, from one of the mystical traditions, it says that um, the original being withdrew created an empty space and created into that empty oh, yeah. space. There's very clearly this sense of discontinuity. So I'm interested, for, because for me, the mystery, the idea of mystery is also, are, do we exist within continuity? Or is there a discontinuity between the imminent and the transcendent? And whoever wants to comment, I was thinking of Elliot, but whoever else, please feel welcome. Thank you. Thank
4: you. Well, well, I'll comment on the second, and then um, so I, I think it's more complicated than that. And even the example you used is actually from Luriana Kabbalah, for all those who may not be familiar with I it. I
12: was aware, I just didn't want to get yeah, all linguistic.
4: Yeah. yeah, no, I understand. I knew. I know you were aware of it, but just to bring everybody into it. So the idea that the, uh, the the primal act is not a projection of the infinite, but rather the withdrawal, contraction of the infinite to make space for that which is other than its infinity. But I'm going to use this to, to, to point to the complexity that in fact, the ultimate paradox there is there is a withdrawal of infinity from space. It, it's an, empty, it's an emptying, emptying out of the fullness of infinity. But within that space that is created, there is still a trace of the infinite. Whence all things, other than the infinite, come to be. So that means there is a continuum. There is a continuum, and I think one of the one of the one of the things, certainly in Jewish mysticism. I I, I don't want to speak about Christian mysticism too glibly here, but certainly Jewish mysticism complicates the the more the more ordinary or typical or conventional understanding. Of Judaism, whereby there would be this radical break between the transcendent and the imminent. it complicates that to the point where many Kabbalists are actually seemingly guilty of something like a pantheism or panentheism, and somebody else could take the first or or the second, but that's
12: there is no no place devoid of him correct which is to say there is or continuity it. within the discontinuity right
4: right yeah. we could render that the language allows us to say it and not him so infin- place yeah so the infin- yeah so the so the infinity there doesn't need to be gendered as masculine actually okay yeah.
12: thank you and the idea of mystery being a human creation and meaning being a human creation. Does
2: anybody want to respond to that? Well,
13: I guess I would.
12: I would
3: think that lots of particular mysteries are human creations, but the capacity to conceive something as mysterious, using the terms, I know there's something I don't know. You know, something something reflective of that kind, um, isn't available to things without the right cognitive constitution like a dog wouldn't be able to do it. So even if we make lots of particular mysteries, I would think that our capacity to be struck by things as mysterious is given. Thank you. Um, um, Thank you so much for a
11: great discussion. What brought to my mind is a little exchange about the eyes and looking at the eyes and the mirror, etc. And the thing that came to me was actually looking through, not at. And I was wondering how, from your different disciplines, you feel about ability of looking through. And I'm very interested in uh, energies. And I was wondering what everybody from their own disciples feel about energies out out there, psychic, whatever you want to call it, people who are able to to something that we cannot touch and certainly a great mystery and uh, what you thought about this.
2: Anyone up for that? <laughs> Sorry. Next question I think is. Uh,
13: I have two questions. Uh, the first one is for um, Elliot. When you talk about Sufism and um, the task of Sufi's uh, master is to lift the veil, and the biggest veil is the one that helps you see all uh, the other veils and remove all the other veils. What is that? I'm curious about that biggest veil. Um, my second question is for um, Michael uh, and the rest of the panel as well. So Michael talk about, is our brain powerful enough to understand everything? And I was thinking the context of the mystery discussion today seems to be based on our brain only. How about our heart, our soul, our intuition, the neurons in our body, the, the thing that we can't even, with the limitation of language, we can't even talk about. So how do we, how does our view about mystery change if you think about all the capacities of all the functions that we can see or unsee?
0: Well, mystery, uh, I'll do th- this one, is really the easier one. Mystery has to do with your capacity and we can bring dogs in here. So. Um, there are things that dogs must think are mysterious because they can't understand them, right? You know, so uh, when humans do simple tricks, or you know a magician does a trick and all of a sudden a ball appears, and so that's a mystery to you. And so clearly things that we don't understand, I guess that we would put in the basket called mystery. And uh, the the previous, uh, so I don't think it's the size of the prefrontal cortex that's the issue. It's the existence of the prefrontal cortex. So, probably making it twice as big is not going to really do qualitatively anything different. So maybe we'll be able to, you know, do differential equations faster or uh, under, you know, read Yates faster or whatever. But so, the, what's the next big thing in evolution that extends our understanding? What's the next prefrontal? cortex that takes us to a higher level. And I can't imagine that this is the highest level of understanding that we have.
4: So this is good. It leads right into the answer. <laughs> so it's very typical for Sufis to speak of the past as leading to, as a polishing, and this involves you know, techniques, you know, fasting, meditation, all the rest, polishing the heart so that it is a pure mirror so actually the imagery of mirror is much older than the modern period uh, and in that mirror the truth will will be manifest will appear and the truth al-haq in arabic is the word that they use for the ultimate reality which is even greater than allah it's greater than all it's greater than yahweh it's greater than all the theistic gods but but when you really go deep into their language, again, you're you're confronted with the paradox that the final veil that is lifted is the veil to think that a final veil can be lifted. That we are always always embodied. That's our condition. And there's also something here that's very important with the relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm so the, that final veil that cannot be lifted is not only each of our embodied states, but it's the grand embodiment of the cosmos. And so that the cosmos is concurrently both the manifestation of this truth and its concealment, because that truth cannot be manifest in anything you know, limited, even Something as great as as the cosmos—it's greater than that. So. Okay. Yeah, that's the ultimate mystery for us.
5: Um, can I say something just quickly? I've been thinking about um, the, you know the, the image question, and I mean I don't, I don't think it wasn't that we weren't interested in it, but that it it was to the side of what we were thinking about. And um, it's true that before language that images are the perceptual material. And we don't know about that because we we have only language to get us there, but Yeats was particularly interested I mean you know we, we um in in something like a world of images that precedes language that may even be beyond language that it, it's not an irrelevant question it's just it's it's sort of to the side of mystery, but it's a mystery insofar as we um, can't describe it or communicate it because it is, doesn't exist in the materials of our communication, though Yeats was certainly going to try. Um, even the veil, right? I mean, Shelley says veil after veil may be removed, but we'll never get to the inmost mystery. That it is the removal of the veil and the tease of the veil. He's quite aware of that as an erotic um, operation yeah, as, as well when as well. Humphrey Dum- Davy mm-hmm. used Humphrey Dumpy. Humphrey <laughs> Davy uses that metaphor of science as unveiling and removing. It is the male investigator and she nature that is being yeah. unveiled. So that mm-hmm. these images are also um, historically and culturally embedded in ways that you know. Um, Bring our critical um, thinking into play. We wouldn't use that metaphor system now without certain liabilities. So I just wanted to add that that I think the question about images was very important. It what just took me a while to get my mind around it. But okay. since you huh? said images,
0: why, in terms of communicating, how come we only use language and not art and music?
5: Well, I think we do. I mean, music has always interested philosophers because
11: it is it is wordless and it is it is sensual. I
0: will have an
2: artist tell you.
4: Yeah,
11: (laughs) (laughs) as a matter of fact, I was going to bring up up images. And I'm always interested to hear how the uh, scientists and the writer and all the different fields come together on this issue. And there is an aspect of the collecting of knowledge in order to unveil mystery by history, by the past, by other intellects working on it. And I was just thinking of the problem of in the around sometime in the 20th century there was the fascination with artists to start with the tabula rasa instead of preconceiving something instead of starting where the end is known in the beginning the concept of working with the naked canvas and and seeing where what you know where you can go uh, where is the end result and many many writings of artists are always speaking about wanting to start where they let go of everything they've ever heard of all the knowledge they have and even letting go of the self in order to arrive somewhere they don't know where that somewhere is but they believe there is a somewhere where something will be revealed that hasn't been revealed yet so it's a a different kind of process and I'm just and this now I'm speaking in terms of images Uh, and so maybe any of you have any comments about this concept of the tabula rasa wanting to start and I guess writers too sometimes will want to start somewhere uh, without any pre if it's, it's possible without any preconceived ideas of course that's not but it will lead they believe somewhere to the new
7: I can say as a writer,
11: absolutely. Even though
7: I work within a genre, so there are certain expectations with, within that. There's the mystery within the writing of the mystery, which is the moment that that it takes a turn. There's some, uh, often writers will talk, mystery writers I know, will talk about different characters becoming other things better than they intended and it's sort of the i guess it's the romantic notion of the or automatic writing or other devices oh, to sort is. of break free of the traditional um, expectations you even had for yourself for the book much less what the genre expectations are and when you when it happens it feels like you're accessing your unconscious in some way and a character does something you didn't think that they were going to do and it feels like you started over again and the book has opened out into a whole other area so the mystery becomes a second mystery, to, to go back to that point, which is what great, which is what you write for. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Next. Ernie, are you going to be asking a question? Dr. Kafka? Did you? Are you also going? Cause...
14: I was thinking about
2: it, but I'm still thinking. <laughs> <Because> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, yours will be the last question. Uh, from a Buddhist perspective, the phrase, the realm
9: of mystery, is a non sequitur because it presumes that mystery is an ontology rather than an aesthetic. Um, when, when, when you um, uh, use the, the phrase cognition, cognition is as much faith as it is uh, a method of reasoning. Uh, and uh, uh, when you referred to uh, the arrogance of science, the presumption that, uh, that, that, that we could know more than... Than, than um, uh, our, our experience in this moment. After all, my experience of you in this moment is my creation, um, uh, and 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 so, you know, did God create man, or did man create God? Uh, and there are many people who, who who feel that you know that that is more the reality, uh, and uh, uh, so I don't think you've really reached uh, uh, an understanding of what what mystery is. Um, uh, you know, it's very personal. Uh, my, uh, my, my sense of mystery, my sense of awe, my sense of the aesthetic um, uh, is, is very personal. Uh, I don't think I could generalize that. Uh, and, and your presumption is that it can be generalized. And uh, I, I, I object to that. Well,
3: okay. I think one was invited to talk about a topic, so one tried to think of it as a topic to be talked about. That not, does not preclude your being right. That we tried.
2: <laughs> Dr. Kafka, do you have the question ready? Uh, I that.
14: Well, well uh, the problem is not uh, having a question. The problem is having too many questions. Really. <laughs> yeah. uh, first of all, it seems to me that, the, uh, the, that if, you want to, if you want to be able to talk about something, you have to limit the subject. And that was not uh, that, that uh, was not something that it's easy to do. It's very difficult for me to do uh, if i If I could say what a what question is, it is first of all, the question of language. Uh, how do you arrive at a definition of what you call language? Is it all lexical or is it also inclu- inclusive of uh, art, music, painting, uh, et cetera? Uh, Bob Motherwell once said on a television program when he was asked, yes, I understand what you're doing. Your actions are supposed to reveal something or communicate something about what your experience is to other people, but tell me, what does it represent, your work? And uh, Motherwell turned to the interviewer and said, what do you represent? And uh, there is it a representation that we're looking for in art, or is it something that one c- can represent? Uh, is is really and the communication aspect is very uh, is very important. Now, as far as as far as, as non-lexical uh, language is concerned, uh, the behavior of crowds, the behavior of animals, the relationships between dogs and humans, dogs can read our minds. They can they can experience our emotions. And they respond to them according to the way they experience. Uh, now, whether they ever have invented the idea of what does it all mean, uh, this is another uh, another thing where Where does this come from? This idea of meaning? Uh, we hear a lot about science which seems to be an exploration of mechanics. How does something come about? What goes into it? What are the the physical or whatever laws that are involved with it? But it doesn't explain meaning. I don't think that there is a science of eliciting meaning. And I'd like to know what people think about this. Uh, Could we go into it a little bit some other time, maybe? Thank you.
2: Does anybody want to give a quick answer, or we stop here? Well,
0: science doesn't do meaning. So we, I think we, we had this discussion earlier with scientists about how the world works. And, and I think we do that very well. And if you, uh, it's like the plumber, You know, if you want, if you want your uh, living room decorated, you don't call the plumber. You call the interior decorator. So we do the plumbing very well. We do how the universe works extremely well.
2: <laughs> OK, so thank you very much.